This episode is dedicated to Sans Serif, Noah Chapper, and Dungeon Master Eleven for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to Pride Never Die. Uh, it is your friend, Karian, and I am joined by a dear friend of mine, um, PhD candidate for the Department of Psychology at Wayne State University, Colleen McDaniel. Hi, it's so great to be here. <laughs> Lovely to have you. And uh, today, I wanted to take some time to talk to them about their research into sexual violence, um, you know, victim advocacy, and different forms of how that gets, uh, how the culture gets kind of uh, spread and grows in our society. So the main thing I wanted to have you on with uh, today is, since we are, you know, a martial arts podcast, we focus on combat sports. Um, I myself do a lot of training and want to want to continue to offer different forms of like self-defense and community defense specifically for the queer community in my area and uh, i wanted to have you on because a lot of times a lot of the current self-defense programs are things that are ran and controlled by cis white men yes <laughs> who have a view of sexual violence that uh, does not include all of the victims that uh are hurt by it yes so true <laughs> yeah I, I figured you as a phd candidate are a lot better to uh, go into details on it than myself <laughs> <laughs> i love it yeah absolutely um i mean i'm first of all i'm just so glad to say that you know you have this podcast and have been so inspired by seeing the work that you're doing um you know, as a, a s small framed person who was socialized <laughs> as a woman and girl, um, I've done a lot of self-defense classes at the university level and, and then even in advocacy, like seen it done. And yes, that is the best way to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> Led and controlled and dominated as, as is the rest of the world <laughs> by yeah. the whites is head man. So, yeah, obviously, anyone who's experienced these classes and has been in these uh, situations can can tell off the bat that it's not going to work for them and that there are problems with it. But I think um, the average person has a hard time putting into words why that's such a problem. And I was wondering if you could kind of go into why having cishet white men in control of the defense and empowerment of women and queer people might be problematic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'd love to talk about it. Yeah. So, you know, when I, when I think about um, self-defense classes and, and the way that they are currently put into practice, um, especially with this, this sort of dominant group, I, I sort of think of it in two, from two different lenses. So, 
The first is the way that it's led and the message that it sends to us as queer folks, as people who are more at risk for violence, um, and as people who are being sort of put in this this box of victimization. Um, And then I also see it through the lens of how do the potential perpetrators see it? Okay. So with the first part, you know, this, this box of victimization is really, you know, and, and I think we can see this in a lot of different contexts where it's dominant group putting a label or putting their perception onto, you know, what they see as maybe helping <laughs> or protecting the, um, the rest of us. Um, and it's, it's a very narrow view of what I label as white cis femininity. Because I think the, you know, in, in a lot of these self-defense classes that they have, it's like, well, my daughter, my sister, my grandmother, my, you know, whoever, my niece, right, could be affected. But who are all of those women? They tend to be white and they tend to conform to, or this this um, version in their mind of, of what these women are is, is this delicate, you know, white, like princess who's on this pedestal who needs to be cared for and protected. And she's no way assertive or uh, has no agency. Right. And <laughs> so it, I think... And that is exactly it, right? It just, it strips us of that agency and then fits us into this very narrow box that most of us don't fit in. Even the white cis het women don't fit into that box. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's everyone else, right? There's all of the rest of us. Um, So I think when we, when we look at it from that perspective, you know, it's really like, well, you're sort of forcing us into this very narrow view. And the reality is that we can't even connect to that or, you know, feel that it represents our experiences because that's just not, that's not who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that's not who we are, then that's certainly not how we're experiencing victimization. Um, so then I'd also say the other part is looking at it from the, how do potential perpetrators view it? So every time on my campus, I see the, and on our campus, it's the, it's the police. It's actually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wayne state police who are a branch of Detroit city police, which is a whole nother issue. Um, but every time I see that invitation go out, I can't help but think to myself, Oh my gosh, like what is the perception that the perpetrators on campus have, or that the, you know, the hostile folks on campus have. And I'm just thinking they must be they must be thinking, you know, oh, these, you know, first of all, they're also looking in this very narrow view of victimization, but they're thinking it's not on me to address camp, you know, violence on my campus. They're saying, they're thinking it's on, it's on everyone else. It's on those who are at risk for victimization to make sure that, that they don't become victimized. And, and it's not my place to do anything or self-reflect at all. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, I think it also can create this sort of false narrative of, 
uh, you know, a lot of sexual assaults escalate to violence, um, of course, like in the, in the physical sense, physical force and in that. And, um, we see beating, especially in the trans community, um, as something that, you know, trans and non-binary people are facing. Um, but then there's also this narrative of, um, sexual assault that happens in relationships and between acquaintances. Um, and so it, it sort of, you know, when we're not saying, hey, everyone come learn about safety and, and de-escalation, which I love that you said that in your description, um, you know, it instead it's like, oh, these victims need to fight people off and I don't have to do anything about it. Yeah, I would say that definitely makes sense with like a lot of uh, issues I've personally seen um, in the self-defense and like martial arts world. Um, as someone who's been practicing martial arts for a really long time and been in those spaces for you know almost a decade now, um, there's been a lot of one. There's a lot of people in that space that they have this sort of mentality, even just with normal everyday people, even if they don't see them as people that are like, you know, people that are taking their self-defense class or whatever, there's a lot of people that have that, well, I'm the sheep dog, you're the sheep. Mm-hmm. Or like, I'm a lion and everyone else is a sheep. It's always some sort of apex predator thing that they have to feel like right. they're some really strong uh, furry. <laughs> yeah, and it's, I mean, it's a really this like structuralist view of like, there's cishet men and there's cishet women and the cishet men attack the cishet women. But then there's also this like, but not all men, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's so contradictory and convoluted. And it's like, well, no, like we're complex people. We can't structure things in that way. Yeah, it's a similar thing to like when you're, you know, a teenage girl and like your dad is saying like, don't trust any men because all men are pigs and all men want to hurt you. But also he's a man. So it's like, so. (laughs) It's like, okay, so I don't trust you either, right? Because. (laughs) Right, yeah. Like you're also a man, so. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Also being in self-defense classes and, you know, it's it's been verbatim, like, scenarios that people have laid out in self-defense scenarios where it's like, well, say you're, you know, a frail, like, white woman at the ATM, and then all of a sudden there's going to be, like, it's always some, like, dangerous black guy comes up, and it's, like, always in there that it's racialized, mm-hmm. and it's assumed that the person attacking you is a stranger who's threatening and of a different race than you Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, there's so much wrong with (laughs) right and and i would add to that i mean even in just that example of like the atm like they're trying to rob you like there's also this classist undertone that i think we don't ever think of either and um, I know one comparison I always hear in the victim blaming world is, well, you wouldn't walk across campus with your money hanging out of your purse. So why would you dress a certain, you know, whatever it is, why would you drink? Why would you dress? Whatever. And it's, yeah, it's just, and that's, I mean, yeah, like, like you're saying, it's just part of this structuralist sort of view that doesn't consider this intersection that we all have of many different identities and how that can play into many different things, you know, and I think that's something that is, uh, is so clear in the queer community because we have, 
I mean, even just in queerness, we have different levels of, of power dynamics and, and identity and identities at play. So yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The racialization of it is. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's a lot. It's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, like the racialization of it, the assumption that it's going to be a physical assault, like with money and things involved and like the fact that there's rarely been a self-defense class I've gone to that's been led by someone that is, you know, a cis white man with martial arts experience where they've broken down the possibility of, well, what if your significant other assaults you? Or what if someone in your family assaults you? And those are real things that happen to real people all the time. And they're never touched on as a thing to worry about or defend against. It's never seen as an issue within those classes. And I feel like that's a huge glaring point. Yeah. And that's, I mean, and that's the majority of sexual assaults, right? It's, it's between acquaintances, it's between family members, it's between romantic and sexual partners. I think even in the, when we, when people are trying to talk about this assault in the queer community, it's still, it's like people are still holding onto this narrative of like, it's outsiders hurting us. And it's like, yeah, there's a huge piece of that. That's a huge problem. We're seeing, you know, all sorts of microaggressions and hate crimes and physical violence, but we can't ignore that within our own community, there is pain and hurt and trauma and violence. And like, we have to unpack that together because, you know, otherwise we're just always going to be seen as victims and we're never (laughs) going to be able to get to those real underlying things of, of like what's happening in our, in our relationships and why. That's something I've come to think about a lot when I've thought about um, offering self-defense and things like that for the queer community and stuff. And like people that I'm friends with is this kind of realization that it's not enough for me to just be a martial artist or just a coach or anything. I often feel like to do that work, I have to be like, an unofficial unlicensed therapist as well (laughs) to be able to be like someone that can not only give people the technique and the confidence they need in those situations, but also to give them the skills to confront their own trauma, confront their own things that they've got they're working on and also build those skills of it's one thing to be confident and it's one thing to know how to fight, but it's a completely other thing to know how to use your words and things like that to avoid a situation. It's another thing to know how to like, how to hold your ground in social instances and avoid like those pressures and different things like that, that abusers like to use. And it's, it's so much more than just, you know, knowing how to get up out from under someone or knowing how to like break someone's wrist. (laughs) It's not just knowing that alone isn't going to do anything. Yeah, exactly. There's there's the emotional work that has to come with it and and addressing our own socialization. You know, what what are the ways that we have been socialized? What are the ways that we've been torn down to believe certain things about ourselves or not feel like we can, you know, stand up for ourselves or or address a certain situation. And also, you know, the added layer of that is that interpersonal dynamic within relationships of I 
I might care about the person pinning me down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is such a complicated feeling. Um, and, and so how do I want to go about this if, if I might, you know, and, and what, however we deal with that down the road, in that moment, I might be thinking to myself, how can I say no or, or get out of this situation without causing harm and damaging the relationship to, with this person that I genuinely care about? And that's a really, yeah, right. That's a really complex feeling and something that is just so, so difficult to navigate. That's a, it's definitely a big thing I spend a lot of time thinking about is how to get out of situations while mitigating the amount of like physical harm and like intensity you have to exhibit in a scenario as well as like, you know, like even you were saying, I mean, it can be emotionally hard. It can be like mentally hard to even take those steps to say no in an instance like that, where it feels like if you say no, this person will get upset in some way and you know it's a thing you have to deal with at some point and like it takes a lot of work to get to that point yeah and and something that we i think needs to be talked about more and and there's emerging research on it but is this sort of idea of of betrayal where we have created a commu- you know a trust within the community because we have a shared experience of queerness and you know to say that that shared experience is certainly not <laughs> identical for everyone mm-hmm. but we are trusted and bonded through it in our in our pride and in our identity and in the you know the the trauma that comes with stigma in the external world um but because of that trust when the harm comes from within that community. We feel betrayed not only by that person who we're in a relationship with or, or who we're, you know, having this experience with, but also we feel betrayed by the entire community. Um, and that's, I think, an interesting dynamic that's emerging in psychology that has largely been, I think, ignored. Um, and it adds an extra dynamic to that trauma and to that experience of violence. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's like a, especially any marginalized community, like, because that sense of community becomes so important to you, because you are ostracized from society at large, it becomes this thing of feeling like, it's almost like when you don't feel like you have a close, like, nuclear family to rely on, and then you come up with, you know, your, your chosen family, and then if someone in your chosen family hurts you, then you start to feel like, you know, well, am I even capable of making decisions and who I can trust? Am I reliable? Like, am I making bad choices? Is it just me? Is the community bad? Is the community violent? Like, and it, it really can put a lot of uh, mental trauma on you to have to wade through all of those existential questions and those questions about safety within your own community. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Something I wanted to talk about as well is people in the martial arts community, people that follow the podcast well probably already know a little bit about this um, because it's been pretty big within MMA and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu both lately that um, it's come out that a lot of instructors in martial arts and people who have taught self-defense classes and led these women's classes and things like that are also sexual abusers Mm -hmm. and have victimized people that 
have trained under them, have taken students under them and used that um, power of being a coach and of owning this gym and running this culture to just abuse multitudes of women and abuse people in a way that they feel like they can't escape from because if you are to if you're to call them out and you know accuse them of what they're doing to you it's you versus hundreds of people that have this person's back and yeah i don't <laughs> it becomes a lot harder to trust anyone uh who's teaching a self-defense class if people who are teaching self-defense classes are being outed as abusers themselves. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I think the healing that has to come in a lot of the spaces that we're seeing this happen in is sort of creating a, I think it comes from creating a transparency and rebuilding trust because, you know, there's so much harm that's been done and, you know, I, I I have to say, I, there's no answer to the right way to go about, <laughs> <laughs> you know, calling people out in these situations and, and holding people accountable. I think uh, for every individual survivor, it's, it's going to vary on their own perceived risk and their own perceived, uh, you know, I don't want to say costs and benefits, but in a sense, like, you know, their assessment of the situation. Mm -hmm. um, but I think definitely with, you know, yeah, I could see being, being a, you know, someone who's teaching self-defense, you'd have to create that space and, and just have that transparency there to say, I am here, I am trustworthy and we can get through this together. I will not cause harm. Like if you don't cause harm, you know, not right. that you it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like if. <laughs> yeah. Something else I wanted to ask is like, uh, as someone who has done this research, who has seen all these trends and um, sexual violence and the way that it's handled in society at large. Um, what in your view is the best template for like a way to go about a class that people that have been victimized and things like that might want to partake in? What's the best way that you could see to offer people that help? Yeah, that's a great question. So there have been recent, uh, there was a, a study that was pub or published in the last, I want to say, three to five years. I believe it's called the EAAA. And that was, they did a clinical trial um, that focused on self-defense, but also sexual assertiveness. Uh, although there's been some some questioning of it uh, here and there among researchers that I've heard, um, but I think at a more grassroots level, you know, there's so much empowerment in martial arts, and I think using you know, that focus on empowerment and I'd say empowerment while, while unpacking the, the messages that we've heard, you know, um, so some of the big focuses on, in the more recent literature that's been published on self-defense and sexual assertiveness trainings has been how can we reduce self-blame and 
how can we reduce shame around being victimized? And so I think when there's an emphasis on that and and then having this, you know, having martial arts as a tool um, for empowerment and not only for defense, then I think I think we refocus to put the autonomy of the individual at the center rather than the victimization piece at the center. So when it's saying, you know, you have the power to do this, there's power in that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's something that I kind of, in a way, made me fall in love with um, martial arts and stuff when I started doing it is, you know, um, as a teenager, it was this thing of, at first I was just doing it because I had seen a lot of different martial arts stuff and I was a really big fan of pro wrestling and gotten into MMA and was like, oh, this will be really fun and cool. And then... I started doing it and it very quickly became this thing of not only like kind of feeling in awe of the fact that my body could manage to do these things and feeling empowered in that way, but it also allowed me to just learn more about myself and things that um, I might not have been aware of. Like, you know, I don't think I probably would have realized I was trans as early as I did without martial arts without being able to like exist within my body in that way um, without being able to connect to my body like that. Um, And there's been a lot of different emotional things that have, you know, like as ridiculous as it sometimes sounds uh, getting ridiculously tired and beaten up and like working really, really hard in this physical sport and like martial arts will, help you process different emotional things that you've been holding on to that you just weren't aware of because when you burn that like burn all your energy and you get exhausted and like get taken kind of out of your body in that time because you (laughs) you've just kind of like burnt all your resources it, it really allows you to have time to like reflect on things that you were just kind of hiding from yourself you didn't even know about a note to our loyal listeners If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor, by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, it'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it 7 days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com, slash, southpawpod. Yeah, that is such a beautiful description, wow. (laughs) (laughs) That, yeah, that really is, you know, that, that makes me want to be like, you should, all, you could also use, you know, martial arts as a way for for healing, for survivorship. I mean, that sounds so powerful. And I do, I think, especially because with, with so much socialization, you know, when we're socialized in these very strict gender norms, especially, there's the message for, you know, those who are assigned boys that, you know, your body is 
a weapon, (laughs) you know, and your body is gross and there's no beauty to it. It's just like this tool for you to assert yourself and take up space in the world. And, and then for those who are, are assigned girl, it's, it's very, um, you know, your body is, is a tool in a different way to attract attention and, and be cared for. And you have to manicure it, but you can't, you can't shape it or form it at all, except to meet these certain standards. And so I think there's a a beautiful reclaiming of that. And especially for survivors, there's so much of that disconnect. And I think as, you know, um, I can't speak as a trans person, but in the non-binary, I can say with the, those feelings of like dysphoria that we may have regarding our bodies and the way that they're perceived in the world and, and the way that we move, um, that, like you were saying, just that beautiful sort of connection, I think, because our bodies, you know, we, we think about our bodies, I think in a way that cis people don't. And so that I think that's another way that the trauma gets layered on. (laughs) And, um, and so having that as not only you know, a, I guess a prevention tool, but also as a healing and recovering tool. That sounds just, oh, I love that. I love, I just love the way you described that. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back to what you were talking about with um, the way people that are raised and socialized um, male kind of get told to view their bodies as weapons and like gross and ugly. (laughs) It's almost like this, uh, like, you're just all constantly told that like you you can't do anything soft and feminine you are made for harsh things you are made for war and like uh i'm thinking about that a lot right now because um my friend alana mclaughlin just had her first pro mma fight um as only the second trans female um mma fighter in history wow and the first one for seven years to compete and a lot of the conversations going around are, of course, incredibly transphobic in the fandom, and it's all a lot of men saying that, you know, how can this person go in and, like, have this fight with this cis woman that they obviously have these advantages over, and, you know, obviously, like, even as a trans woman, you're still going to be stronger and bigger and everything. And I think so much of that comes from the subconscious thing where men are told so often for so long that they are made for violence. They specialize in violence. No, like a woman could never do violence the way they could. So they want to believe that that is inalienable. They want to believe that nothing could ever happen that would make them weaker, that would make them less physically dominant. They don't want to believe they could ever lose to someone that is female. And they put that pressure onto trans people by (laughs) saying that, you know, your masculinity that you were born with, if you were born male, you can never get rid of it and it's with you forever, which just scientifically isn't true, but it's not, not like they really care about that. Right. I think that, I think, yes, it, it completely goes in with this idea of, you know, this intertwining that we have of sex and gender where we've gone so far as to gender sex (laughs) and gender biology 
to the point where even in, you know, I mean, even in like, um, trans inclusionary circles that I've been in, you know, we still talk about sex as a binary and on a biological level, especially with more emerging research, there's just more and more evidence that sex is not binary. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> I know, um, Oh, and I'm I'm blanking on her name now, but I'm thinking of um, the runner, um, Caster. What is? Anyway, she's a runner, um, (laughs) an Olympic athlete, and uh, she has high um, high levels of testosterone, higher than what. people have labeled as typical in the female body. And so she's been uh, rejected from participating in in a lot of competitions because of that, because people are labeling her as too male to be a female. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so I, I think this, you know, this binary view that we have of biology is just so ingrained in this oppressive gendering that we've done and created as humans and and I think also to that point you know in a in another sense um I think that when we think about victimization it also makes it more difficult this view of you know like you said inalienable masculinity it it makes it even more difficult for folks who have been victimized um and especially for trans women because we don't see them as victims because we're like, well, in the same sense that we don't see, you know, cis men because people can't or people can, people refuse to write, like you said, you know, remove that, that view of masculinity and, and refuse to see them as survivors and as people who can be hurt and can experience violence. Yeah. I think a lot of, um, a lot of not only trans people get ignored in the conversation about sexual violence, but so do a lot of, you know, cis gay men and different people who are, you know, were born uh, male. They have a, have a much harder time getting that acceptance from people um, when they try to speak up about being a survivor in their relationship with sexual violence. I think that's definitely something that gets buried a lot in today's society. Yes. And, and um, we actually see that gay men and bi men um, along with bi women have higher rates of victimization too. And that I think that plays into that, that betrayal piece as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then I wanted to wrap back to something we talked a little bit about earlier when we were talking about self-defense classes and stuff. That was the classism aspect of self-defense. Because I think that also touches a lot into the queer community because the queer community also has a higher percentage of homelessness, of poverty, and things like that. Um, So in what ways do you think that the current model of self-defense is letting people down who are impoverished? Yeah, that's a great question. It's interesting, especially with folks who have been displaced from their homes because of their queerness. Um, We see this a lot with youth. Um, (laughs) I think as a society, we see the homeless population as a whole and, 
and in particular queer folks who are homeless and queer folks of color um, as the perpetrators and as bad people. Like, well, right. what did you do to deserve to be homeless? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, what did you do to deserve to be impoverished? <laughs> and, um, and so it's hard because we just immediately see them as the bad guy, as the perpetrator. Um, and so I think it comes down to how can we reframe that maybe? Um, and, and how can we just involve them? I think is really what, what it gets to, how can we reach those populations and get them involved in the leadership? Because, you know, ultimately I don't think, I don't think all the research knowledge in the world could, uh, could determine what it is that's going to be helpful for them. Yeah, I was going to say, I think at the end of the day, with almost any community, if you're trying to be helpful helpful for their struggles, you need to first talk to them about what their struggles are and what they want to uh, help, um, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and unpacking it for ourselves and, and, and allying, you know, in a way that is like pointing out how we we don't place them as victims, but we place them as as perpetrators, as violent people, as people who deserve what they get. It reminds me a lot of like the stigmatization as well of the mentally ill and the way that it's talked about as, you know, you have to be careful around mentally ill people. You have to worry about them hurting you when it's actually far more likely that they're being hurt and abused by people in their life than that they're going to be attacking you. Exactly. When I'm thinking about like queer community defense and things like that, I'm also trying to think more about like what those sort of programs can do within a community, like how I, as someone trying to lead something within my own community, can address these issues and things like that. And it often feels like a lot of the resources, especially that are available now, aren't really available to a lot of marginalized communities. And it feels like the struggle to figure out, like, well, how do I create these resources for myself to then distribute to a community that does not have access to them? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, You know, I think uh, so. I think that local queer resources can be some of the best resources because, uh, and I admit this so openly, the resources that we have for violence right now are just not good enough. <laughs> we, right. They're just not. Um, and so being in those spaces where we can talk openly, I think is, is a big, a big part, but not to say that there isn't the victim blaming and, and harmful aspects, you know, in those spaces as well, that can certainly be the case. Um, so I think being a resource ourselves for people is great with boundaries and limits. <laughs> um, but, you know, anytime someone discloses, I always have the three things that I say. I believe you. Um, it's not your fault. And I'm here to help provide you resources. And I can, you know, how can I point you in the right direction? Um, so that could be you know, looking into supporting someone through a search for finding a counselor or um, saying, I'll go with you to a, you know, a support group. 
Um, it could be a number of things, but I think ultimately, you know, because we can't all be, you know, trauma professionals, it really just comes down to finding the resources for folks, especially, you know, in local ways, but then also creating a space where we're openly talking about it and we're talking about it in a trauma-informed way. And we're understanding, you know, those, those three simple things that people need to be believed, that people need help, you know, that, that is understood and, and that, um, I'm blanking on the other thing I just said. (laughs) 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 Oh, and that, and that it's not their fault and that people shouldn't be blamed. So yeah, yeah, I, that's like, it's not a whole answer because I think we are so lacking in resources and I really can't say, can't emphasize that enough. Um, but yeah, I think, I think as individuals, just listening and being there is really, really some of the best work that we can do. And then also, you know, speaking up when we're hearing troubling things and, and just standing up to our friends can, can be huge because I think, you know, the biggest thing that, that perpetrators do after they perpetrate is go to their friends for justification and validation. And I think just stopping and saying, Hey, that I'm not okay with that. Um, and then getting others on board with you and and talking through it, um, is honestly a lot more powerful than we think it is. Right. Yeah. I think that has a lot of weight to it that people kind of discredit sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And having, you know, and, and even if it's like, um, having, creating a support group ourselves, you know, and, and maybe after a class sitting down and and having affirmations or talking through, you know, something that was hard. Um, and just knowing that other people are there can be really powerful for survivors, even if they don't have access to a therapist or a counselor or to, you know, some of these other supportive resources that have been made intentionally, you know, exclusive. <laughs> right. Something that I think is really pertinent for this audience in particular, because as leftists and as progressives and uh, specifically as prison abolitionists, mm-hmm. um, I think a struggle a lot of people have is dealing with the fact that, so if we, if we manage to form our perfect society, if we abolish prison, if we're no longer living under capitalism, we're doing all these things yeah. in that world, there will still be sexual abusers. Mm-hmm. And how do we as a community address that and handle those situations in ways where we still can have community accountability, we can have proper healing for victims, and we can have restorative justice? I was that was that's the answer. Restorative justice, I think, is (laughs) is the key. (laughs) Um, You know, I think it's, it's hard for me to to say that if we lived in a different world without power and oppression, that sexual abuse would look like what it looks like now. Um, because, because power dynamics are such a part of it. Um, I think on an interpersonal level, you know, it does, it would come down to, um, just, just interpersonal healing. Um, I think 
you know, and, and mass incarceration and, and prison, especially that you said that is something that is so, it's, it's such a difficult conversation because on one hand, you know, we run the risk of, you know, and, and these are the extreme ends. On one extreme end, we run the risk of saying, you know, fearing reporting and fearing um, accountability because we want to, we don't want to contribute to incarceration and we don't want to contribute to these harmful, you know, systems. Um, and then, and so then we, we can get into harm, but then, you know, the other extreme end of that, of course, is like, lock everybody up. And that's certainly not what we want either. (laughs) Um, and, and this is where I, I don't think we have enough advancement and I, I hope to see more of this happening, but, um, restorative justice, you know, be it through, through counseling, through, um, mediation, through other sorts and mediation, I say with, you know, grain of salt, um, (laughs) because mediation can be actually more harmful than, than helpful. Um, but you know, finding ways of accountability that aren't punishment, (laughs) but, but intervention and healing. And especially because, you know, when we think about perpetration, um, and this is no, in no way an excuse, but an explanation, I often go back to the hurt people, hurt people. And so (laughs) how can we, you know, what has happened to people that we can unpack the toxic things that they've internalized the toxic socialization, the toxic experiences and the harmful experiences that they've had. And what are the interventions? You know, in my perfect world, there's an intervention. Well, in my perfect world, everybody goes to therapy all the time, actually. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, but we have interventions and we have early education to reflect on ourselves and, um, and, and unpack those things. But yeah, that's a really long answer to say, I don't think there is one right now. <laughs> I don't think there is a solution. I think, I think we just have to be working towards it. And I think, um, seeking out spaces where restorative justice is an, is an opportunity is excellent. I know on the university level, there's more of that happening. I've seen in some, um, community counseling centers, that's becoming more of an opportunity. Um, but you know, in the meantime, just, just working on ourselves and, and hopefully this is more for less for us and more for the, the, the people who can pay funding research (laughs) to work on intervention. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I mean, that just always feels like the long form answer to so many issues that we have, um, today is, this feeling of like it's going to take a lot of individuals doing work on their own and then working together and building trust within communities and coming to just like a higher social consciousness on the issue and getting to a point where the the base level thoughts on the sort of issue is not where it is today and it's more along these lines of restorative like restorative justice and you know healing and trauma-informed processing and things like that and i you know i'm i'm always optimistic that it is getting better and it seems to be getting better quickly um a lot of people are doing really good work all the time on things like this and as it's this 
two-pronged thing of it feels good to see the work being done, but also it it's never going to feel like the work's being done fast enough. Yes. <laughs> yes, that is so true. <laughs> <laughs> That's just, yeah, it's just always going to be like that. <laughs> yes, it really is. Uh, it really is. I mean, I can tell you on the research end, it never is. It's always so yeah. slow. <laughs> it's uh, excruciatingly slow. <laughs> people are so slow to adopt research too, like into their practice. Yes. And and, I, and researchers are slow to listen to practitioners and see what else is <laughs> happening. It's, it's, yeah, it's a bridge. It's, it's a bridge we need to build. Um, and the, the back and forth absolutely needs to be there. But, you know, it's, it is so upsetting sometimes. I, I agree. I am also very optimistic. Um, but it's just a hard answer of like the systems have to change <laughs> and, and we have to be the ones changing them. But, I think, you know, these sort of grassroots movements that we have of creating spaces of support is so influential. You know, we think about the movements that have been happening in the past, just in the past few years alone. Um, and I don't only want to point to Me Too because that was such a such a narrow <laughs> part of it, but movements like that and movements that have um, grown through that visibility. Um, I think, I think we'll get us there. Um, but yeah, totally agree. It will never be fast enough. And <laughs> yeah, that's just the nature of time and progress, I suppose. But yeah, <laughs> doesn't mean we have to be happy about it. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I schedule time to be angry in my week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like have my 15 minute blocks of just scowling. Yeah, exactly. Yelling into a pillow and, and crying. And then, right, yeah, lots of crying. <laughs> lots of crying. And, and then it gets done eventually. But. Right. One other thing I wanted to touch on with you is this, this sort of feeling I always have um, trying to work on things like this within the community and trying to do these things for, uh, you know, as a queer person working within the queer community and constantly having this feeling of like, I am not trained enough to do this. I do not have these credentials that other people have. And it's this like, this bizarre thing where I constantly feel like I don't know enough to be offering people the help I want to, but also still feel like if I don't offer the help, uh, no one is going to ever offer it to them. Yeah. And that's like this thing in our culture that I just really struggle with is, you know, everyone wants to ethically defer to professionals and things like that. And, that's for good reason. Um, there is a lot of, you know, ethical hangs up, hangups in helping people with in your community that you are close to process their trauma. And I'm wondering if there are ways that people within their communities can offer people some like respite and some help without overstepping those boundaries and without getting into that murky ethical water. Right. Yeah, and and I would say also because of the the piece of access that there just isn't enough access to those resources too. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. So uh, I have a number of different ways I'm thinking about this. Um, so the first I would I would say 
you know, I'm, I'm okay. I want to say the, in the psychological community, we have caused so much harm that (laughs) I, I think there are still just to add to your point, I guess here, um, I, I can never blame people in our community. Like I, I do not blame you for feeling that way because, um, because of access, because of wanting to, to provide that help. And because the psychological community has done such a bad job, like we are, we suck. <laughs> <laughs> Quote me, I put that on my gravestone. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, there's so much work that has to be done around creating a safe and a social, you know, social justice kind of space. Um, for the queer community, um, and especially for those who have been victimized and, you know, regard in this way. Um, so yeah, so that's just something I'm, I'm mulling over and was thinking about while you were saying that. I think, you know, how can we help? So I'm a huge believer that allyship, be it within our own communities, be it with folks in other marginalized communities that aren't our own identities, be it with, um, you know, survivors uh, of different forms of violence, we have to find our lane. (laughs) And we have to go so hard in that lane. Um, Because, you know, we all have, this is like, you can tell I went to Catholic school, we all have gifts. (laughs) (laughs) We all have specializations. We all have things that we are really good at. And when we go hard on them and we all stick to that area, then like I rest well knowing that you're going to do your thing really well and I'm going to do my thing really well. Um, And so I think it's, you know, it's so hard to have a friend or community member standing in front of you in pain and not just want to say, oh my gosh, let me let me help you. (laughs) Let me do this for you. Right. I get that feeling. Um, but I, I do think we do, I think we do our people a disservice when we want to, when we try to be everything for them. And like you said, it's this, this unethical territory. So, um, I think finding where in, and I'm going to stick with this language of where in your lane, (laughs) (laughs) uh, you can provide you know, support for them, um, and in the ways that you can provide provide that support for them, um, you know, figuring out what those are. So, you know, like in, um, with the martial arts community, I could see, I think we talked about this earlier, you know, creating a, a support group or creating like a survivors only class, you know, that would be excellent. Uh, where you can, you know, incorporate trauma healing maybe um, into that class, and and maybe it's seeing if if you can have um, a counselor or a trauma expert provide some insight into, you know, how that could be done, or maybe they can come for a portion of the class, or you know, something mm-hmm. like that, right. um, and partnering with folks, um, but. Yeah, like I wish I had a better answer because I I just think I think it is it's just so hard in the and with trauma, you know, the risk for for harm is so 
it's so looming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it's, yeah, it's not to say there's nothing that can be done. I think it's really just finding what in my, what am I capable of in my lane and knowing that even though you can't do it all, the work that you are doing for survivors in that way is enough. Um, and, and just the more that each of us can do that, whatever it is, um, is, is actually so, so powerful than all of us trying to be everything and burning out really quickly. Yeah. I, I definitely think that's a big part of it. And like, uh, I like your uh, Catholic school. We all have our own <laughs> gifts metaphor. I think my version of that is, um, I, I just go incredibly nerdy and I like to do like an analogy with, um, D and D party mechanics. Yes. <laughs> where like, you know, if you have five people, but you're all playing a warrior, that's going to go poorly. Like there are some people in life that are better at being healers. There are some people in life that are better at being like a scout. There are some people in life that are better at being a wizard. Like not everyone can be someone who swings a sword really hard. Yes. Um, Yeah. Just like finding your niche and then just finding like how, your expertise in your lane can be beneficial to those around you, I think is a very big part of figuring out how to do work within your community without being, you know, unintentionally more harmful than helpful. Yeah, right. And it's, it's, I mean, a lot of that too comes up, you know, with like unpacking our own you know, this mindset that's been put into us by capitalism of like, we have to do everything. <laughs> um, but I love, I love that comparison. That's exactly right. Um, and, you know, and even within our own communities, we still all have those special, <laughs> those special gifts. <laughs> yeah, our little special gifts. Our little special gifts. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for talking with me. It's always a pleasure to get some time to just you know chat with you especially about things like this um it's always lovely getting to pick your brain about (laughs) just about anything really but (laughs) especially this (laughs) where can people follow you do you have anything that you would like to plug anything that um, people should keep an eye out for yeah absolutely um so i can be found on instagram and twitter at violence underscore femme because I love the violent femmes and I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> so, that is a good one. Isn't that great? Thank you. <laughs> so yeah, at violence femme. Um, and I do on my Instagram, I do a lot of uh, research literacy. And then on my Twitter, I do a lot of sharing and all of my publications and um, not just academic, but also my, my public um, work can be found there too. Well, thank you once again for coming and talking to me. It is lovely to have you. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a wonderful discussion. (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad you liked it. And thank you, everyone, for listening to Pride Never Die. Um, Make sure to support us on our Patreon. Um, The only way we can keep doing shows like this and keep having more guests on and doing more work about things that involve our communities like this is if you support us and please make sure to check out all the other shows on the Southpaw network. There are so many that are in the works right now and so many that are already out there that are lovely. And once again, thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.